Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have these guys with me here as well. So glad to see you, Brian. Morning, Brad. Philip. Hey, Brad. Bob. Good morning. And Dustin. Hello, Brad. We've got some good topics to discuss today, including meat demand monitoring. We'll talk a little bit about nutrition in these fall cows, especially this year where it's dry in many regions of the country. And a little more pharmacology update from Brian on some things that are relative to your operation, including implants. Before we get into those topics, guys, we are in the heart of football season, getting into the groove of watching high school, college, and pro football. I had a question for you. What is, name your favorite pro football player, but they have to have retired at least five years ago. So no current players who is your favorite football player of all, pro football player of all time, retired at least five years ago? Well, I was a Denver Broncos fan for whatever oh. reason growing up in Illinois. And so John Elway was. John Elway. See, well, I like the old, the old Kansas City Chiefs, you know, Bobby Bell. The Dallas Otis Texans. Taylor. No. They were. <laughs> was like the first, that your era? Was that your yeah, era? The, the, first, the first Super Bowl that the Chiefs went to, that, that you know. Lenny Dawson, got to bring up old Lenny. So th- th- those were those were high, highly enjoyable teams and, and games. I remember listening to the radio. Dustin? Well, I grew up in Illinois. You get those 85 Bears. With, yeah, Bears. You know, with yeah. the fridge. I could never forget yeah. the fridge. Yeah. When he scores that uh, touchdown Super Bowl. But, so I don't know, maybe. But then also got when I lived in Colorado, the Denver Broncos, you had Peyton Manning was only there for a little bit. And I don't know if I have a favorite per se. 85 Bears. Yeah, I don't. <clears throat> um, I, I was kind of a Brett Favre fan, but I don't, I didn't really have a favorite favorite, I guess. Awesome. You guys are good. Well, who was yours? Yeah, probably from back then, probably Joe Montana. Oh, yeah. That's 40, 49ers when he was 49ers. I liked him when he was with Chiefs too, so he was yeah. good. Yeah. So lots of, lots of good football watching, hopefully still ahead of us as we go forward into the season, but it drives us into an, uh, Dustin, there was a comment made by one of your ag economist colleagues that said, maybe that meat demand is changing because of the start of football season. People are grilling out. But tell, tell us a little bit about meat demand and what it's been doing lately. So, yeah, we'll back it up. So i got a colleague, uh, Glenn Tons, our ag economist, and he does has this uh, monthly survey that he sends out to 2,000 consumers where he tracks U.S. consumer preferences, views for the demand of meat. And it's called the MDM. If you're interested, you can find his monthly reports on agmanager.info. But in this most recent survey, uh, what he found was the demand for dinner meals that are consumed away from home, so think uh, restaurants, was up. And noting that grocery store demand for retail meat was down. And so he also noted that foot traffic was up in restaurants, and he said that trend was stronger in the southern states. And so then, of course, he joked, oh, maybe it's SEC football, which I've never been to an SEC game or never really lived in the south, and I've always wondered, do they start tailgating like on Wednesdays? I mean, yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And so then that maybe would be the joke is <laughs> – Yeah, they, they're going through things. a lot of briskets. Yeah. Yep. It would be interesting to go back and look at demand in other states where maybe they don't want to play – they no. don't want Saturday football any, games. Any any states you're thinking of there, like north of us? Like I don't Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. May change. It yeah. would be interesting to, to to note, but yeah, it was. He noted that meat demand was up, uh, especially in the not the re, uh, the restaurants and stuff. In the restaurants and more. Possibly the 
you know, football. So his meat demand monitor, and you said it's on Ag Info if you want to look up information there. And this comes out monthly, and the type of information that's in there describes restaurant utilization, uh, people eating out, wh- what all is covered. Restaurant, uh, he has every month this willingness to pay for various cuts like ribeyes, ground beef, pork chops, uh, chicken breasts. Uh, they talk about where they consume and the frequency of protein uh also where by restaurant type they also ask some questions on kind of the personal knowledge personal of of diet and they always have a couple ad hoc questions and it just every month it's a little different sometimes it's where do you where do you find this information that that people who you trust like usda or you know do you trust mcdonald's when you're getting your uh, health information things like that because some of the things that that i'd wonder about is We've talked about meat demand going forward. We've talked about cold cows, and I maybe want to get you guys' opinion on where are we going with cold cows because we've talked about drought, and are we slaughtering enough of those cold cows that it's impacting? Is the price of cold cows going to go up? Is it going to go down? Do you guys have thoughts? Well, my understanding is this fall, cold cow prices have stayed really strong, even though the number of cold cows going to slaughter is up this year. And I think it's highly due to the, the amount of the country that's dealing with drought. And so there's just not the fall forage, winter forage. And so people are culling a little bit deeper into the cow herd. And you would think that would normally drive cold cow prices down. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be pressure on cold cow prices eventually. But uh, we're still higher than we were a year ago. I think Bob's probably right. And I think it's a this year may be a good opportunity if you do have grass and you're part of the country that has grass that you can keep those cold cows around a little bit longer, add a little weight to them, especially if they're thin. You can really add a lot of value to a thin cold cow cheaply and because that price is probably going to drop with all the cold cows hitting the market in october november and so holding those cows until january february may assuming assuming i've got feed you've got feed yeah i said yeah in parts of the country where you have some grass and some feed in addition to the drought though feed prices are really high too so that might be another reason besides drought that could be well that's that's true because if if i look at my options to either holder longer or or whatever you know my my feed prices or my feed cost for the next few months is is pretty high and if she's not going to bring me a check soon uh, i i might want her to bring me a check right now but am i taking some risk there market risk relative to if everybody so if i know she's a cold cow today then in six weeks when most of the cold cows hit the market Am I taking a, a price risk? Yeah, you don't, I mean, you never know, but a whole bunch of cows are going to hit the market in six weeks or whatever. I mean, that could drop up. Now is better. Pressure on prices, yeah. Either now or after that. But it could all be <laughs> there's, regional. There's too. some good Oh, you, you should market now or, or maybe later. later. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, Let me guess. You're going <laughs> to buy low, sell high. <laughs> that's, that's my goal if I just always knew where those were going to land. You can subscribe to Dr. Larson's newsletter at <laughs> itdepends.com. I got nothing to say. <laughs> All right. So I, I think that's excellent on the, the meat demand. We talked about cold cows. There's also, Dustin, you, you mentioned a couple weeks ago, new packing facilities. And there were you talked about smaller processors and packing facilities. And there's been announcements in the last few weeks that there are actually some larger ones going in. Where do you see that impacting? I know you're still in process of doing some of your research. Where do you see that impacting? Yeah, and so the ones that they announced, I mean, real recent was 
one in Missouri, I believe we talked about. Uh, and those were a little larger, 1,500, 2,500 heads. So I don't think that will be in competing with what we're talking about, these very small uh, meat processors here in Kansas. But that definitely could have an impact. Uh, the one in Kansas, or the one that's going up somewhere in Missouri, you know, that's going to be a lot further east than most of the large ones out here in Kansas and west. I don't know, that'd be a unique one in the sense that, think about from a geographic kind of a niche, right? Maybe they're filling a certain uh, a niche. And so I don't, it's going to be hard to say, uh, but you know, if we keep building these larger plants, uh, at some point, it, more inefficient plants, especially if we continued herd liquidation and, and all of a sudden there's not enough cows to, to, to slaughter, something's going to have to give. Yeah, you know, for, for every winner, there's oftentimes a loser. And I, I would imagine that what I've heard is, you know, these these newer plants are trying to use technology to, to add some efficiency. And that would imply that some of the older plants maybe aren't as efficient. And at some point in the future, that may be a signal then for some of the uh, less efficient plants to close in, in favor of some of these newer, more efficient plants if they really can uh, capture some greater efficiency. Yeah, it could. Uh, the one thing I often wonder too is, you know, as you get, you know, it's very expensive to build these large plants, these bigger plants. And you know, when you take a 4,000, 5,000 plus head uh, processing facility, you know, what's those economies of scale that they can get compared to a 1,500? Well, we talked last time, not just the processing efficiency, but also the market access, right? So you've got access to some of the awful from some places or some of the right. other byproducts that may come out. No, absolutely. Oh, and I, I wonder too, though, like when you talk about the very small plants they're they're built inefficient from the start, right? That's not really their goal. And so, and I think we've talked about in podcast pasts about, you know, people wanting local beef and things like that. And so I wonder, I, I don't see, I guess, and, and I can join Bob's podcast on agricultural economics later, but the, I think I don't think the really, really small plants are competing head to head with the really large plants. I think they serve a completely different consumer. They have a different goal. And so the I think it's the middle sized ones and they might actually be competing with both ends, right? They they might be competing with the upper end of the small and the smaller end of the large. And th- those are the ones that I wonder like how what that's gonna look like moving forward for them. Like those are great points, Brian. Is it is not a direct head to head competition. It's more of a which niche are you serving or which market are you serving? And I think that's we'll we'll see more and know more. And and as Dustin mentioned, there's some good information out there relative to some of the changes in demand. And and I want to stay on the coal cows a little bit and maybe go to the cows that stay on the farm. And especially this time of year, we have fall calving cows. <laughs> And I know that there we've talked about drought. Let's think about the nutrition for those cows that stay on the farm and knowing their highest nutritional needs are right after they calve. What do I need to be thinking about with those cows that are calving this fall, Philip? Well, let's let's back up just a little bit. And if you think about the nutrition of a, of a fall calving cow in a normal year, um, they have some advantages. One is that they're going to calve in better body condition score. Um, than your typical uh, spring calvers because they came through the summer without a calf on their side. They had good grass. They're probably going to be body condition score six 
when they calve in the fall. And so they have the ability to lose some body condition score through the fall and through the winter without detrimental effects because they're still going to be a five by the time breeding season's coming around. And they can lose a little bit more and not lose that pregnancy through the winter. And so you can save some feed that way, and that helps. So that, that's a good advantage for those cows in a normal year. But in a drought year like this, it's that fall calving herd is a really at a real disadvantage. Because even in a drought year, you usually get some spring rains that give you some green grass in May, June, or whenever your normal green up is. And then it turns dry and you start using up grass. Well, you fall lots of times in the drought. You don't get those early fall rains to get that uh, fall forage growth, and you've used up a lot of your forage. And so now with fall calving cows, you've got a cow at her maximum nutrient requirements, and you don't have a cheap feed resource uh, that's going to meet those. And this year, she may have come in and calving at a five or a little bit lower instead of a six. And so she started off a little bit thinner. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of my fall calving herd clients had, you know, wheat pasture or some, you know, winter annual type of a grass that they could turn them on. And in, in the drought part of the countries uh, where we often see winter wheat pasture or rye pasture, uh, it's, not, it's not there this year. And so I've kind of bought into a system that works most years, but it didn't really, may not work as well this year. So what do I, what do, I do about that? Well, you're going to have to feed them. I mean, that's your only choice. You're going to have to find some um, feed resources to meet those nutritional needs. I mean, you use corn stalks and other crop residues for some roughage, but those are not going to meet the energy and protein requirements of a early lactation cow. And so she's going to require some energy supplementation, which is actually the most expensive thing to supplement, and some protein supplementation. And so trying to do that in a cost-effective manner um, in a drought year when feed prices are high is going to be difficult well that was kind of my question that i i was just thinking is we were, we had recently talked about how in a spring calving herd uh turning cows out on corn stalks or milo stalks is actually a pretty good deal and so i was going to ask well i don't have wheat pasture to turn them on to so how about turning on my corn stalks and you kind of you kind of cut that out from under me pretty quickly as far maybe maybe that's a part of the diet but Certainly not enough. Yeah. So for a spring calving cow that you wean that calf off here in September and turn her on corn stalks, she's at the lowest nutrient requirements of the whole production cycle. And those corn stalks can, and probably with a little bit of protein supplement, can meet her needs, but not for an early lactation cow. And so you can put her on corn stalks and that gives you some roughage in her diet and stuff but you're going to have to supplement her with high energy feed stuffs like distillers grains or soy holes or corn gluten feed or you know whatever you can get and and maybe some finding some alternative local byproducts that you can use is probably going to be one of the cheapest ways and i think we'll have to figure out some way that you can supplement her and sometimes it's even moving them it's because some people will move them between geographic regions to areas that there are grass or feed stuff because we're talking about the supplements but even the forage is in short supply in some areas and has been really high priced so now is the time to do that math and the scenario that we don't want to get into is I'm going to use up some of my feedstuffs early trying to keep as many cows as possible because the other the other option as painful as it is is to reduce the number of mouths that I have to feed to match my resource right which we don't like to do that but if you're going to have to do that eventually 
doing it now, your feed's going to go much further. So lots of lots of things to consider there and certainly some challenging times. Hopefully, as you go through that process, and if you have any tips or tricks on that you'd like us to share with other folks, you can certainly send us an email at bci at ksu.edu because we know that is very challenging, especially those fall calving cows. Brian, I want to go back to you and ask some questions about, we, we've had, we did a little bit on drug updates last time, some of the things that have come down the pike, but I want to focus this time on a couple specific cases that, that have changed. One has come up several different places where they talked about the change in implants have, have never been specifically labeled to be necessarily re-implanted. And that has become a question. I'll let you dive into the details of that. And the other was chlorotetracycline and a, and a potential approval with Menensin. So I'll let you jump in on either and kind of give us an update of what do I need to know as a producer about both these changes? Yeah, so we'll, I, we can start with implants because that's where you started. So and implants, they fall in, they're kind of a, for regulatory purposes, they're kind of their own thing. But it with other drug approvals, we only we only can do what's on the label. Now there are some exceptions. Veterinarians have the prof- the professional privilege of extra label use in certain circumstances, but implants don't really fall in that category. Um, and so, what has come about is implants. Since as long as implants have been approved, their label was silent on a follow-up on a re-implant. And so that that's kind of... Yet, yet, yet a very common practice. Very common, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and it wasn't that the label said you couldn't do it. It just didn't say you could. And so when we get into these regulatory situations, when it's silent, then there becomes this question of what do we do? And so th- this has come to light. And so what what you are seeing now is uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies are going through the process. And I... I don't think I don't know that all of them will do it for every single implant, um, but we are starting to see some of these now where the implants have specifically on the label that they're there. There's a language about re-implanting. So uh, now we're now we're uh, on label. We're doing what is a common practice is now matches with what is on the label. So Brian, what's the advantage for the pharmaceutical company to get that approval? If we were already doing it and there, there wasn't necessarily an issue with it, what's the... Well, so because I think what we're going to see... Now I think we're expecting some regulatory action with that because it's been silent and the decision's been made that that is an extra... Re-implanting as it stands now is an extra label use and it doesn't fall into this situation where that would be allowed even with that. So we're basically getting the real world to match up with what the regulatory process and the drug labels say. So there, there really isn't a, there's not really a cost advantage to the or a, a sales advantage to the pharmaceutical sponsors. It's really just about complying with what the regulations already say. But, but many of the concerns were that the regulations were going to change in how they were actually being applied in that you'd only be able to give one implant because that's all it has on the label. So changing the label is a big deal because now you can continue to do those. And, and it, it bleeds into some of the other discussions that we've had on here relative to efficiency and how that, how that has a huge impact on yeah. overall performance. Yeah. We, we know implants are really, really effective. So um, I, I think these are, these are good changes. And um, like you said, unless people are, are reading the labels, you know, they probably 
probably wouldn't notice it. Like you said, we're just now coming into compliance with what so no no change in product, no change in the formulation, just a change in the label. Just a change in the label. What about CTC and Manensen? Tell me, tell me maybe a yeah. little background on w- sure. why this is relevant. Yeah. So so this one is um, again, it's um, this one may or may not have been as common, but it certainly wasn't legal in under the current regulations. And so this, we, we have to go back to when the veterinary feed directive changes happened three, four years ago now. Um, so, so those changes were, they brought all human medically important antibiotics under veterinary feed directive. So if it's in there, there, where you can find that it's, um, it's in one of the appendix documents of, um, the FDA, and we can put a link to that in the podcast notes if we want. But uh, it's basically if any antimicrobial that has an application to human medicine is considered medically important. And so all of those came under veterinary feed directive, which includes all of those changes. So now, uh, you know, you have to write your veterinarian, the veterinarian has to write or authorize the VFD for that use of that antimicrobial. Kind of some smaller parts of that regulation is one, there is no extra label use of veterinary feed directive drugs. Not so you you there if it's not on the label, can't happen. It's similar with the Which implant. Means dose, method dose, of administration, route, any other class, drugs with any it. other drug. So one one of the subparts of the of the label is concurrent feeding. And so um, in order to feed a veterinary feed directive drug, which those medically important antimicrobials, with any other drug, whether it's medically important or not, they have to be approved. So it has to be on the label for what we call concurrent feeding. So they have to be labeled to be fed together. And so chlortetracycline has an approval for concurrent feeding with lasalicid or Bovatec, um, but it did not have a label for concurrent feeding with menensin or, or rumensin is the common brand name. And so what has happened now is, is one of those companies has gone through that process to get chlortetracycline labeled for concurrent feeding of uh, concurrent feeding of menensin with chlortetracycline. So um, if if that is something that you want to do in your feeding operation, it still requires a veterinary feed directive. Um, so the veterinarian writes the VFD for the chlortetracycline, and then one part of one section of the VFD that they fill out is um, it's called the authorization for concurrent use. And the veterinarian says, I write the VFD for this drug, and I I authorize the use of any other drugs that are approved for concurrent feeding, which might be now an option for menensin, or they can authorize a specific combination as long as it's approved. So say only CTC and menensin, but nothing else, or the veterinarian doesn't authorize any, and it's only the CTC. So now, now it is legal to write the VFD for that concurrent CTC menensin use. So an important change, because if you wanted to use one of those products, say the chlorotetracycline, you would have to be with an approved ionophore. So, mm-hmm. so now you've got some options there. And I think all of these th- may, may seem like small changes, but just as you mentioned, Brian, the veterinary feed directive has changed how, how we handle and document some of those. And I know certainly some of those documents are evaluated down the road. So hopefully that was helpful information for you. And we'll keep you abreast of any other changes that, that come up and come down the pike and, uh, or that we hear about. As always, we're glad to have you listening with us today. You can, 
If you're interested, we also have an Ask the Expert segment on the Ag Today podcast, and you can sign up for a weekly newsletter, or you can email us a question or something you'd like us to visit about at bci at ksu.edu. Mm-hmm.